1: Good evening. Welcome. You're listening to the Cable Friday evening in the city of London. I'm Guy Johnson in London, alongside Alex Steele over in New York. Uh, it has been a busy and bumpy week. We have much to discuss. The headline today coming out of the United States in the form of the payroll number, which came through more strong, uh, came through more strongly than anticipated, uh, and uh, we've got wages going up. We've got a solid labour market. Wages are going higher equity market's selling off pretty aggressively on the back of that. Uh, Bond yields also moving sharply to the upside as well. The FTSE 100, Alex, finishing at 75.56. Absolutely fairly flat on the day Um, and bouncing back, actually. It got dinged up pretty badly by the payroll number uh, and the shock around that, but actually came back into the close uh, to a fairly neutral position.
0: But I still have to point out that we're still looking at a full cut priced in uh, for next September. That is really a hedge scratcher. From the Fed. For me, from the Fed. Yeah, that's what the market's currently pricing in. So despite the number, despite the market move, are we still seeing the reticence uh, of the market to believe that the Fed's going to keep rates higher for longer? Or are we expecting that the downturn is going to be so bad that they won't have a choice?
1: Uh, yeah, I think we've got CPI still to go before the next decision. I think the Fed's about to go into its quiet period. Um, I think it's going to it's going to be an interesting few weeks. Um the Fed keeps telling us that it's committed to, to raising rates, maybe not as such an aggressive rate, but it's still ultimately going to take them up to a fairly elevated level, potentially north of 5%. Anyway, we're going to catch up with our Jersey in just a moment. He is Bloomberg's chief U.S. interest rate strategist to give us his take on all of this. Uh, we'll do that in a moment. Before we do that, though, we need to catch up on all the other headlines. Here's Charlie Pelle. Hi, uh, Thank
2: you very much, Guy Johnson. Here's what's going on. John Lewis Partnership is teaming up with investment firm Aberdeen to build about 1,000 new homes. In and around London, the 500 million pound joint venture will see new homes built on the sites of Waitrose Shops in the London districts of Bromley and West Ealing. The French energy giant Total Energy will be cutting investment in the North Sea by 25% next year in response to the expanded windfall tax announced by the UK government. Last month, the government raised its energy profits levy to 35% from 25% and extended it to 20 2028 in a bid to shore up public finances. The oil and gas industry had warned that the move would threaten development, with Shell saying it will reassess plans for as much as £25 billion of investments. Families flying abroad for Christmas face strikes at Heathrow with baggage handlers set to walk out for three days just as the end of the school term triggers a mass exodus via the London Hub. About 350 staff at Menzies Aviation, which provides ground and handling services for carriers including American Airlines and Deutsche Lufthansa will strike from December 16th that according to the Unite Union the action will affect three Heathrow terminals as workers push for a pay rise. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson back to you now in London.
1: Charlie Pellett, thank you very much indeed. Charlie, back in 30 minutes' time to update us on what is happening. Um, In the meantime, let's dig further into what we learned about the US economy today. US employers adding more jobs than expected and wages surged by the most in nearly a year. Basically, what this spells is enduring inflation pressures uh, that certainly increase the chances of higher interest rates being delivered by the Federal Reserve. Is this, though... Is this, though, the dreaded wage price spiral that central banks fear so much? Earlier, Alex and I caught up uh, with Julian Emmanuel from Evercore ISI.
3: When you think about it, going back to 2020 and 2021, the amount of fiscal and monetary stimulus put into the system was four or five times greater than we'd ever seen, including the financial crisis, going back to World War I, really. And when you think about that and the length of time it takes to unwind that, we shouldn't be surprised that there are still pockets of the economy 18 months later that are experiencing upward pressure strains. Think about break-evens think about inflation expectations. If interest rate volatility does, in fact, come in, all of that's telling you this is not a wage price spiral. This is
4: not the 1970s.
1: Ara Jersey is Bloomberg's Bloomberg Intelligence's chief U.S. rate strategist. She joins us now to discuss the number and what it tells us about the U.S. economy. Do you agree with that? Julian, wages are starting to rise. If this is a trend that continues, the Fed's going to be deeply unhappy.
3: Yeah I think it's a it, it's the the problem is is that look this is one month one number it was so a blowout number, right? Six-tenths of a percent increase in wages vis-a-vis the market's expectation of a three tenths, is, you know, not something to sneeze at. But, uh, you know, Jay Powell just on Wednesday mentioned, hey, wages in the service sector are continuing to rise, and that means that prices in the service sector might continue to rise. And when, when you look at a lot of the details of the PC data, the deflator the, the data we received yesterday, goods prices are already moderating and, and growing at a much lower rate. But services, is really what's going to be more sustainable and keep inflation way above the Fed's target. So, mm-hmm. so I think th- this morning's data uh, was was very telling, and certainly the the rate market is thinking, uh, you know, now pricing in again yet uh, almost another hike after uh, after this morning's numbers. Uh,
0: Michael McKee, also joining us, uh, Bloomberg International Economics and Policy Correspondent, joining me now um, in the studio. Um, Mike, in order to avoid a wage price spiral, and I appreciate what I was saying, that this was one number, we need that labor force participation rate to continue higher. It was for a couple months, right? What's going to make that move higher? Uh,
5: well, Jay Powell kind of raised the white flag on that uh, the other day. Uh, he uh, at Brookings suggested that maybe we're not going to see more people coming back into the labor force in uh, significant numbers because uh, the Fed has finally concluded that there were excess retirements during COVID. There was uh, excess mortality during COVID of workers. And there's long COVID, which is keeping as many as six or 700,000 people out of the labor force. And so they're not really looking for that to be a solution anymore. I think they're looking for basically job growth to slow down. Uh, But at this point, as they look at the JOLTS data, it doesn't look like it's going to, and companies are having to pay up. Ira mentioned the service industries. Service-providing industries uh, went up – the average hourly earnings went up six-tenths of a percent. That is uh, the highest since early this year. Uh, Goods producing only went up two-tenths. So it's the service sector that can't find the workers that's still paying more money and doesn't seem to be a sign that that's going to be stopping anytime soon.
1: Mike, is Fed policy having any impact at the moment on the labor market?
5: Doesn't look like it's having a huge impact on the labor market, except in a few uh, sectors. Uh, We're still seeing mortgage brokers (laughs) laid off. Uh, Realtors maintain most of their uh, employees. Uh, But uh, one of the interesting aspects of this report was 30,000 jobs lost in retail. Well, this is the time of year when you think they're going to be adding Mm -hmm. people to their payrolls. And it may be that companies are just holding on to folks because it was so hard to get them. And so we may not see uh, big major changes in the labor
3: force uh, going, going
5: forward.
0: Ira, do you need to revise up your terminal rate at this point? (laughs)
3: <laughs> I, I don't think revise it up because I, I'm still at five and a quarter. What I think is interesting today, Alex, is we're not back to where we were a month ago in terms of pricing for the terminal rate. So, yeah, you know, for, let's first get there, right? Let's first get the Fed Fund's futures contract for next April below 95. We're still above 95. So that, that's suggesting that we're not even going to have a 5% um, terminal rate or, we're, you know, the upper bound will be 5%, but we're not going to five and a quarter. And I think we are probably are going a five and a quarter now and certainly data like this suggests that we should be going in, in that direction so we're talking about another 100 and, or 125 basis points of, of interest rate hikes and interestingly to to guy's point earlier in in, in your discussion you know we're still pricing for cuts uh, after we reach that terminal rate basically within six months and i know you know one of uh, one of the big banks came out with a uh, uh, saying that they thought that there would be a november 2023 cut um I'm still very skeptical that the Fed is going to cut, even if we have a, a mild recession at the end of next year, because it's, uh, you know, I think at yep. this point, the Federal Reserve really will want to keep um, rates at near the terminal rate uh, in order to ensure that inflation is lower. And, and so I think that they're going to be a little bit more lenient on, on, or I should say that there's a higher bar for them to start cutting interest rates than there has been in the recent past, and the market's still pricing for 50 basis okay, points so, of cuts uh, and, by next year.
1: Well, Okay, let's talk about that. The Fed is having very little impact, according to Mike, on the labor market. It also appears to be having very little impact on the markets right now, and I'm talking very near term. We heard from Powell talking at the Brookings. We've got data now maybe kind of encouraging the market to to maybe get on board with what Powell was saying. But nevertheless, as you say, the current market structure is still probably not the the, the one that the Fed wants to see. What does the Fed have to do to convince the market that it's serious, Ira?
3: i th- i think it Firstly, it has to be somewhat less balanced. So we, we actually have a model that tracks the, uh, the opening statement of the, from the press conference. And what's happened is, while, while members of the Fed, and, and Jay Powell in particular, continues to make a significant number of hawkish comments, um, it, the, the, there's been an added number of more balanced comments. So saying things like, you know, we, we don't want to hike too much, right? And that's something else that Jay Powell reiterated on Wednesday. Um, the, the, the problem with saying things... Things like that is the market takes that as as that there, it still is a fed put on on economic activity and real growth instead of thinking about it that there's actually a, a more out of the money put on that and the in the money put that's that's already in the money is uh is the high inflation call so, so so i think that the the fed has to communicate a little bit more forcefully because the market continues to um to take every single dovish note kind of with a with, with a I think an incorrect beta, but the, nonetheless, that still is the market psychology. Is if the Fed makes any dovish statement, it's dovish and good for equities, bad for and, and good for uh, for fixed income. But uh, so, so I think Jay Powell just has to kind of understand that there's been a shift in sentiment that way from from financial
5: markets. Well, can, can I just ask, uh, Ira, this um, is the Fed's messaging failing because. Um, they're trying to be honest about the two-way risk, etc., and the markets are just uh, either too stubborn or too dumb to figure that out?
3: <laughs> <laughs> uh, probably both stubborn and dumb, I, I think. I, you know, I, I tend to be a little bit different than some others in that I, I – I try to take the Fed at face value, right? What they say is I think what is what they believe and, and yes, they're um and and, and th- that's changed, quite frankly, from when I first got into this business twenty five years ago, right? Because Alan Greenspan was way more coy than than I think, you know, mm-hmm. Janet Yellen or Ben Bernanke or, or now Jay Powell have been. So So I take them at face value, and and the thing is, though, the market, you know, for example, someone said to me yesterday, the fact that they're talking about, you know, bike rides and stuff at this forum, it's like way different than Jackson Hole, And and I try to say, well, Jackson Hole is a speech. Right, this was a fireside sit-down where you're being asked questions from the audience. Like, it's just a different environment. Mm-hmm. Of course, you're going to be more casual, right? It's a more casual environment. Yep. Um, but you know, but that confuses the market. So then people ask, why did they, he even do this speech? And I was like, well, because it's been on the books for months. <laughs> right? Right. This isn't something that they decided to do last week. So you know, the markets I think don't understand some of the inner workings of how this how this how this is, and tone matters to the market now, yeah. um, as opposed to just exactly what he's saying.
0: So Mike, I'm reading a lot of 2023 reports that are talking about sort of I mean, the first half versus the second half. And you could see a rally in the first half and then things get really bad and then you trough and then and then things are bad in the back half, but then you get a cut, etc. Are we looking at some, some situation where the Fed's going to have to stay a lot longer and push that trough back, 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 back?
5: Uh, well, the Fed would argue they're not pushing it back. <laughs> They've always intended it to be uh, for a long time. You had John Williams the other day saying he thinks they'll hold the terminal rate through 2023 and possibly into 2024. The market is still trying to you know, push that forward. Uh, somebody the other day uh, noted all of the 2023 outlooks coming out and say everybody's embracing the football cliche, a tale of two halves. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, the Fed would say it's just a, a one one long half or one game without a, a middle yeah. for 2023. Although at the same time, and I hate to do nuance here, but uh, like the Fed, <laughs> but um, they would say they don't, they, they're not going to guarantee that. They don't know because they don't know both how inflation, how fast inflation is going to fall because it's an unusual situation and what other exogenous shocks we may get around the world from Ukraine or wherever.
1: Mike, one final quick question. Does the, Fed, is the, does the Fed not get the market? Does the market not get the Fed?
5: Well, I'm coming at it from the point of view of somebody who listens to every word every Fed official says, and it makes sense to me. Uh, I'm going to suspect that the market's not getting the Fed, uh, both because they don't pay as close of attention, and uh, because they're doing lots of other analysis, and because they are stubborn. And for most people, I think, on trading floors, I mentioned uh, Alan Greenspan. He's a historical dusty figure at this point Mm -hmm. to anybody who's on a trading floor now. Uh, They just have known this uh, Fed put for the last 20, 30 years.
0: Guys, really appreciate it. Really good conversation. Ira, Mike, wonderful uh, analysis. Um, Coming up, we're going to stay a little bit in the jobs market and a little bit in politics. President Biden speaking earlier, um, saying that the jobs number was really good, that wages are growing, the economy is in a really good place. This is after making a historic uh, union deal to keep uh, the freight world, the trains running after union protests. This is Bloomberg.
6: This is The Cable, with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele,
7: on Bloomberg Radio.
2: I'm prepared to speak with Mr. Putin
5: if, in fact, there is an interest in him deciding he's looking for a way to end
2: the war? He hasn't done that yet.
0: That was President Biden speaking yesterday at the Joint Presser with uh, French President Emmanuel Macron, uh, talking about Russian President Vladimir Putin. Um, It was the first time that Biden said that he would talk to Putin if... Russia withdrew from Ukraine, without mentioning the fact that Ukraine had to be at the table. So it raised a lot of questions, like, is this a potential thaw in the relationship? You had a a Kremlin spokesperson said that Russia has no plans to leave Ukraine, but would still be open to negotiations. So we wanted to get a little bit of clarity here, plus some other things happening uh, in D.C. So Emery Hordern joins us now on the phone. Emery, what did you make of that statement uh, about Putin and Russia?
6: Well, it was interesting because it also comes on the fact that he was standing next to Emmanuel Macron, who has wanted to be this peace negotiator since the war began. And also he is talking to Putin in the coming days. And he said that. So this was almost Biden showing, I think, a little bit more willingness with his European partners to engage. But he made it very clear it would have to be with conditions. So he says he has no imminent plans to talk to President Putin But he would if it meant that Russia was serious about ending this war and leaving Ukraine. The fact of the matter is Russia is not serious at the moment. If you look at what's happening on the battlefield of leaving Ukraine and also for Ukraine, that would mean all territory, Russia leaving. And a lot of this has to then go back to 2014, the annexation of Crimea.
1: Emory, is there is there any kind of line I can draw between what the president says and the concerns the Republicans have about the defense funding bill um, and providing arms, etc., for Ukraine? Is is there a is there in any way a domestic agenda to what the president is talking about?
6: Well, I don't think it's just the Republicans. I mean, we go back to what. Um was likely going to be to the next House Speaker, McCarthy, talking about a, quote, no-blank check going to Ukraine. He really walked that back and said, they just want to make sure there's a lot of oversight. Um, What you have in terms of Republican leadership, especially on the Senate side, is that they want to continue making sure that they fund and give Ukraine whatever they want, some even saying it's not enough. But what I would say is it's also the progressives. They wrote that letter recently, then retracted the letter, and it talked about, making sure that as the funding continues tens of billions to ukraine that there are avenues for peace um i don't know if this is why and i don't would it wouldn't be able to say directly this is why the president said that but you know you'd be hard-pressed to find someone in washington dc that doesn't want the war to end
0: so what also seems to complicate this is the relationship then between the u.s and and europe um and that really comes in the form of the Inflation Reduction Act. So subsidies given to, say, semis and EVs and car makers and battery makers uh, to help accelerate a green transition here. We know that Europe is very upset about it. Macron addressed that specifically. He said he was pretty unhappy about it in the presser. Can they work together on Ukraine and avoid a disastrous trade problem?
6: I think they can, but I do think that you have Russia, you have China, wanting to divide the West, and they use these moments to do so. Look look what the United States is doing, um, but it's hurting Europe. It's not just the Inflation Reduction Act. A lot of European officials are also quite irked about the CHIPS Act. There's also the fact that the United States is sending a ton of liquefied natural gas to Europe, and those prices are incredibly high right now. Um, this is also something that Europeans will tell you. And they've told me the United States is able to guarantee us volumes, but they're not able to guarantee us price. I mean, that is just not how the market works. We know that. But these are issues that Europe has with grievances with the United States. But really, coming into this press conference, there really was a lot of fiery rhetoric. You mentioned what Macron said. I will go to his finance minister, Bruno Le Maire, he equated what the United States was doing, the Inflation Reduction Act, to Chinese industrial policy. So they are very annoyed at the moment. But the temperature really was brought down the press conference. Biden said he's going to look if there's any tweaks. He didn't mean to ostracize folks who were cooperating with the United States. And Macron said they're looking for some synchronization. And they really wanted to show a united front, I found, against Putin, and even other adversaries. And that was really the takeaway.
1: Is is there a worry, though, that you could see what is happening on trade policy impacting security policy?
6: At this moment, I would say not, because the Europeans are well aware that they need the United States, right? Who else will be sending the tens of billions and the high technology equipment? The United States is the biggest. And this is a war that is on European soil.
0: Yep. Uh, That is very true. Um, The other part that I want to address when it comes to President Biden is more of a domestic issue. Um, So that was his international flair over the last few days. But then on a domestic issue uh, in terms of the rail strikes, can we unequivocally say that that was a win for President Biden? And does it give him any kind of momentum within Congress to help with all these other issues.
6: It was not a win. (laughs) I think it depends who you ask. Um, Maybe maybe the White House wants to spin it as a win, but it wasn't. And Biden even said at that signing ceremony, it was tough for me. He had to listen. He had to, at the end of the day, make a decision, even though he wants to be the most pro-labor union president In history or modern times, he had to make a decision that day, which was to look out for the whole of the entire economy. But he is forcing that tentative agreement on labor unions that refused to sign up for it.
1: In terms of where this leaves him, then, how how does he become how, how does he maintain his stance as the most pro union president? There's been for a very long time and do deals like this.
6: Well, it's a good question because already we've heard from some of them and they're incredibly disappointed with the president. Uh, The president talked about this yesterday and was asked about it. You could tell he was a little bit even annoyed with the question. He said, you know, God love you guys. I negotiated a deal no one else could. And that deal was better than anything else anyone was going to get. But at the end of the day, four of the 12 didn't sign up for it. So it Mm -hmm. is going to potentially dent his reputation with these individuals.
0: Yeah, you saw him really trying to... Changed that narrative a little bit today uh, when he signed that bill, but you know, it's a, it's a long haul. Um, Emory, thanks a lot. Emory uh joining us there. Um, coming up, we're going to talk about uh, bonus cuts. Wall Street's not going to like it. This is Bloomberg. This
6: is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg D.A.B. Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Gaia Johnson is over in the U.K. Um, Okay, quick check-in here on markets. You still have stocks trading a little heavy here, but we are definitely off the lows of the session. I mean, we had like a 400-point down day for the Dow uh, in pre-market once we got these really positive employment numbers. Um, We're definitely off the lows there. Um, You are still seeing a sell-off in the bond market, but again, uh, off the highs when it comes to yields. Uh, um, 4.31 is where we sit on the two-year. The curve, though, getting flatter and flatter and flatter. We know that, but yet still not at the wides that we saw uh, earlier this week. Um, The dollar kind of trying to make a run for it, but again, kind of off the strong positions. It just raises the question... Are, is the market kind of gaming the Fed and the data and sort of front-running it and not believing what the Fed and the data is actually telling them? It really creates a difficult trading environment. Um, OK, that's a quick snap, snapshot of the U.S. Here's Charlie Pellet.
2: Hi, thank you very much. And here's what's going on. Alex Steele, former U.K. chancellor of the Exchequer, Sanjeev Javid, will be stepping down as a member of parliament at the next general election. He told Bloomberg he had reflected on his future over recent days and has decided to quit politics, making him the latest high-profile conservative. Conservative MP to announce their intention to leave Parliament. A Kremlin spokesman says Russian President Vladimir Putin will continue his military operation in Ukraine while being open for negotiations. This was in response to a question about President Biden's comment on having talks with Putin if Russia leaves Ukraine. Christmas dinner is going to be the most expensive in at least a decade as the cost of everything from poultry to Yorkshire pudding soars. Prices for a typical holiday meal, including turkey, pork and vegetables, are up more than 22 percent from last year, according to researcher MinTech Limited's Christmas Dinner Index. That reflects turmoil in markets from agriculture to energy following Russia's invasion of Ukraine, as well as a severe bird flu outbreak in the United Kingdom. That is the latest from the news desk, Alex steal back to you now here in New York
8: I
0: don't know I thought Thanksgiving dinner was really expensive too
2: uh, yes it was much price, the same thing price is going up but you know what we're all invited to guy Johnson's house so that's really he's yeah. not
0: gonna have heat they're all gonna be like in blankets on a wood stove or yeah, something gonna, warming like, their hands
1: precisely. we're gonna have the fire we'll, we'll be good Yorkshire puddings apparently for Christmas as well which is quite exciting they normally have that, but if Charlie's Charlie's saying that we can have Yorkshire puddings, I'm definitely up for that. You guys Without a no doubt, year
2: round, love Yorkshire pudding, absolutely. This
0: none, none of this actually surprises me. Um, well, let's get to what actually kind of surprised me today, and that's the rally that we saw uh, in Credit Suisse. Uh, that stock closed up about nine percent. Um, the ADR here in the U.S. is up by seven percent, um, ending its losing streak. Uh, as apparently the chairman says that the outflows that we've seen recently are now halted, and that liquidity is improving. Um, You had Francine Lacroix speaking with uh, Axel Lehman, the chairman, about this and then all the negative narratives surrounding Credit Suisse. And he really tried to drum up some optimism.
4: Look, we had, uh, you know, beginning uh, beginning of the month, we had that social media storm that had a huge impact on, interestingly, not on the institutional side, you know, professional investors understood there was a lot of rumor spelling, but on the retail and wealth management side, so we reached out, we reached out to 8,000 wealth management clients, they are covering roughly 80% of the assets under management. We reached out to more than 24,000 clients on our core market. So we intensified the dialogue uh, just to make sure they understand where we are and just to make sure we maintain the contact.
6: But what was the feedback like? So if I'm a new client, if I'm an old client, why would I put 100 million with all of the uncertainty surrounding credit risk?
4: No, the feedback is quite astonishing. The, the, The clients still like us. They continue to do business with us. So we had basically zero, very few clients really leaving. They might have... Know, in light of those rumors, we throw, you know some, some money from us, but I'm confident I have a lot of personal uh, discussions with clients. I know from regional management you know, that money, you know, when we do well, will yeah. come back, uh, at least to a significant part.
6: When do you think the outflows will stop?
4: The outflows basically have stopped. What we saw is two, three weeks in October. Boom, And since then, flattening out, they have stopped. It's gradually coming back, in particular in Switzerland.
6: I mean, a number of analysts are also talking about, you know, what could happen to Credit Suisse. So are are you evaluating other strategic options, given the share price dilution and, and, and the market reaction
4: to your announcement? Look, when you step back, we do a capital increase now. In four working days, we will have 4 billion with a CT1 ratio of 14% or close to 14%. That is top quartile uh, in the, uh, in the yeah. industry. So it's a really strong balance sheet to carry through that transformation we go. So we execute our plan.
6: But why do shareholders not believe you? Why does the share price keep on falling?
4: No, I think the shareholders, core shareholders, they believe us. Uh, and they will exercise also their rights. The share price is okay. falling, yeah, of course. You know, The rights issues are traded. The market tries to drive down uh, the price, which is logic, uh, but it's fully underwritten, will be done. So the volatility on the share price will continue mm-hmm. until we are through that uh, you know, uh, mm-hmm. capital increase. Then I think it will somewhat, you know, stabilise and probably, you know, we we'll just move on from there.
1: It's down six percent on the week. The share price. It's down massively already so far this year. Um, the the rights issue is priced kind of in the two fifties. Stock's now trading at two ninety five. It got down into the two sixties. It's been a very bumpy week, Alex. As I say, the stock's down over six percent this week. It's down massively uh, on the year. Uh, I appreciate that the Mister Lemon's job is to sound positive about the bank's prospects, but it has been a brutal week for that business.
0: Yeah, and we were talking about that earlier. Like, at what point does the market cap just become so low that you get someone else has to do something? I mean, I appreciate that we're still around nine billion, so it's not like zero. Yeah. But like, at some point, does it get so low that Someone comes and buys it? I, I, I genuinely don't know.
1: It's going to be interesting to watch what the ultimate future here is. Uh, they still see themselves as an independent bank. I suspect Switzerland would like to maintain uh, Credit Suisse as an independent bank, the clue's in sure. the title. Um, but but he, he's, assu- he's, he's basically saying that everybody's going to exercise their rights. I, I, midweek, I just kind of wonder whether people were questioning that.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's possible. It's possible that he had to come out this hard at yeah. uh, this kind of week to say that um anyway how it evolves i just don't know can't go to zero so where does it get to um okay let's turn to other areas in the banking system and that is wall street and bonuses so this is the time of year where you get nice juicy bonuses if you work on wall street now many wall streeters kind of knew that if you're in asset management or if you're investment banking you might not do so well this year and that's okay you're gonna have a bonus cut what no one really expected was that traders who had a killer year are the ones that are actually also going to have a bonus pool cut um and Shreed Anarajan uh, learn that about Goldman Sachs. Uh, great scoop. Good story, Sri. Um Did this surprise you? Did this surprise the traders, actually? Yeah, <laughs> Better and, question.
8: And, and most certainly surprised them. And I think surprise would be a soft way to describe their reaction. Because honestly, there has been a bit of a backlash over what they've heard. Because Wall Street has a very strong pay for performance culture. When your revenue for the year is going to be up fifteen percent. At Goldman Sachs, that trading division is going to post twenty five billion dollars for twenty twenty two. You could be forgiven for you could forgive the traders for assuming that they would have done okay with the compensation pool. Instead, Goldman Sachs management is talking about slashing their bonus pool. Again, all this is not to shed a tear for the bankers and the traders because <laughs> even with a big cut in their compensation package, they will be just fine. But it is an interesting window into the financial engineering and what goes into play behind the scenes when people are worried about expenses. When, say, at a bank like Goldman Sachs, where you have a big division like their consumer operations, which was a costly experiment, and has left you with a big expense hole, they have very few levers to pull to fill that hole. And acting on compensation is one such lever. That might allow you to keep a lid on your compensation efficiency ratio, on your compensation ratio. That might allow you to preserve ground on your return on equity. But there has to be a sacrifice. And the sacrifice will be for these traders who were expecting to be rewarded yep. and maybe not so much anymore. Um,
1: it's not just Goldman Sachs. Apparently, JP Morgan, Bank of America, City, all looking to, to slash bonuses. In aggregate, What does this tell us about how Wall Street sees next year?
8: So let's zoom out a little bit. What happened in 2020 and 2021, that extraordinary government intervention, central bank intervention, led off to this flurry of deal-making, led off to this big, expansive growth in asset prices. You had big gains, revenue records, and everyone was paid massively, the most in over a decade. Some of that is now starting to reverse. Deal-making is off its high. Asset prices have gone down, so there are parts of big banks where divisions that were really performing well last year are not there anymore, and therefore, you will see management when they look at the broader pool that they will have to make cuts because that's part of the cycle. When when the business is great, everyone's paid well, and when the business is down, you will not have a lot of happy faces in there.
0: sri for Goldman, though, in the trader situation, that in some ways is unique and in some ways really about Goldman. If I'm a trader and I'm mad about that, where do I go? Do I go to another bank in their trading unit?
8: You you can't necessarily get grumpy and walk across the street to a rival bank because a rival bank is perhaps dealing with some of the same dynamics. Mm. Of course, may not have the same idiosyncratic issues like Goldman Sachs, but they'll still have the pressure to keep a lid on expenses. Having said that, think about where the real bid is coming from, from the buy side firms, from a lot of hedge funds. And they don't have these attendant business lines like investment banking, which are up and down or an asset management business, or more importantly, say a consumer bank that might be weighing it down. They are a standalone business, say if their focus is a long-shot equity hedge fund or a credit hedge fund. And we know going into 2023, the volatility that has driven a massive trading boom this year, some of those factors are not going away. You're not going back to docile markets anytime soon, at least no one's predicting that. So those places which have always had a greater ability to pay for top traders, will still have that ability to draw away the top quartile, the top decile from the big banks. And if you are a really successful trader at one of the big investment banks, you know that that option exists for you. That's what makes desk heads. That's what makes Mm. division heads nervous at at these big banks when the absolute senior management says, sorry, this year we're going to preach austerity.
1: What does this mean for those a little bit further down the food chain? Over the last year, there's been a, a story that has kind of rumbled along, and that has been this war for talent. A, is the war for talent over? A- and are these kind of incredible numbers that we've been seeing for particularly junior bankers now a thing of the past?
8: Uh, true, that three-word phrase "war for talent" truly embodied what has been had gone on for the last 12-18 months. A little bit before that. It doesn't feel like that in 2022. In 2021, you felt like the junior bankers called the shots. They could make demands. There was a lot of work needed to be done, and banks could not afford a general strike. And they were willing to acquiesce and appease these demands because they had the ability to pay them, and they did. Cycle has turned. Mm -hmm. If that was the top of the market, this certainly doesn't feel like that. Does it mean we'll never see a war for talent again? No, because that has been the story of Wall Street for decades, that cycles come and go. You were talking about 2021 as perhaps top of the cycle. Not there anymore, but Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that the wheel won't turn again to get us back there a few years down the road.
0: Right, because it's a cyclical industry. We forget that sometimes. Um, I do that with energy, too, sometimes. You forget that this is just, oh, how it goes. Um, For investors, do investors want Goldman to be doing this or not. And I say that because when they sort of said their consumer business was going to have different priorities and they were going to refocus it, the stock went up. So clearly investors were like, please do something different and smart. Today, and I appreciate it's a tough tape, the stock is down 1% despite like more attempts to curb their costs. What do investors think about something like this?
8: There, There are two sides to this a little bit. Yes, investors have lost patience for expense bleed. They don't have patience for management teams wanting to build castles in the sky. They want real tangible results. They want the guarantee and the assurance that money is being spent wisely. So, of course, they would cheer on these moves. And when Goldman Sachs, for instance, announced its pivot from consumer, many people felt that this is what we were hoping for. The CEO seemed to attach to his pet project. But now that he is willing to see it the way a lot of his other executives were seeing it, and perhaps the other shareholders were seeing it, they rewarded Goldman Sachs. And the stock actually was in the green for a brief period, For this year, which no other big bank stock had been able to achieve, at the same time, the core of that business, the core of that firm is investment banking, investment bankers and traders. And Mm. what is the phrase we most closely associate with that? The most important assets at those places tend to walk out the door every night. So you want to make sure these rainmakers are kept happy. Mm And that is a factor that will be true in up markets and down markets. So it's it's a delicate balance that they have to strike between achieving their targets while keeping their workforce happy because you cannot afford to screw it on either front. That's fair. Yeah,
1: well said. <laughs> wise okay. words. Wise mm-hmm. words from Rajan. Great, great reporting earlier. Right, absolutely fantastic. I have to say, everybody paying attention uh, to this story. Uh, bonus season could feel a little bit different this year at Goldman Sachs and at other banks, of course. Um, Christmas is coming. Maybe the goose isn't getting fat. Anyway, up next, uh, we'll continue to talk about what's happening in these markets. That's next. This is Bloomberg.
6: This is The Cable with Guy Johnson
7: and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio.
1: Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson in London alongside Alex Steele over in New York. Over the last couple of hours, bit of breaking news. The European Union finally, after weeks of negotiating, uh, has agreed a number at which it wants to cap the price of Russian crude. That number is now $60 a barrel. uh, And the Poles and some of the other Baltic countries have also insisted that there is a mechanism by which that number can be changed on a two-monthly basis. Um, Will this have any impact? Currently, Russian crude is selling at below that price. Um, We seem to be in a situation where we're trying to manage the amount of money that Russia can make but ensure that Russian crude continues to flow onto global markets because right now we're a little short of crude. This comes ahead of an OPEC plus meeting this weekend as well. There is much to talk about in the crude markets. Fernando Valle joins us now um, to give us his take on this Bloomberg intelligence analyst, oil analyst. Um, Fernando, let's first of all talk about this oil cap that that the Europeans have come up with, $60 a barrel. What impact will that have?
7: Okay, I think, as you as you said, Russia is already receiving a lower price than that around the $30 uh, barrel discount from Brent. So it has really very little impact, Uh, even if you expected that uh, Brent prices to to go much higher from here. uh, We think that it has it has very little impact. Most of the big cargoes are being snapped by countries that wouldn't really observe those caps uh, to begin with. Uh, And and uh, Vladimir Putin has said he doesn't want to deal with with countries that would uh, put on those caps to begin with. So there's a question of whether there would even be uh, a commercial terms to be agreed upon.
0: Do you think that Russia retaliates in a more meaningful way here or is sixty dollars enough to sort of push that to the side?
7: Uh, I think Russia's main uh, weapon in retaliation would be on natural gas, uh, especially as we've seen much colder weather in the northern hemisphere. So uh, I, I think they, they won't do it on the oil side per se. It's something that it's easier for Europe to 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 replace. Uh, but natural gas, we've seen waning supply already, and now that we are in, in the uh, in the midst of winter, they have a lot more power to use that to their advantage.
1: Um, I thought a lot of the gas had already been cut off, which is kind of not. We're still seeing some supplies coming through Ukraine, but Nord Stream One, Nord Stream Two, no longer functional. You're seeing some coming uh, up through the through the southern routes. How much power and how much power does Russia still have in terms of the nat gas market?
7: Uh, they still have considerable power, especially in Eastern Europe and and Southern Europe. As you said, there are still volumes that go to Hungary. There's still volumes that go through Ukraine and to, to Southern uh, Southern Europe. Uh, and and it's it's a is not as fungible a market as as crude oil but it is still uh, because europe is as connected as it is uh, it's still an important market and uh, it's still an important way of controlling that market uh, because then those countries would also start consuming alternatives Uh, and those alternatives aren't just natural gas per se that would be coal uh, it would be potentially even fuel oil depending on the the level of of desperation and then there's the question of whether uh, some of the inventories are going to be tapped the european natural gas inventories will be tapped if those countries need uh need uh natural gas to replace uh, russian supply
0: so i feel like that doesn't leave us feeling pretty positive so the the scenario that 60 dollars is enough for russia to sell its oil to asia and the middle eastern oil gets redirected to europe and everyone's kind of happy that's not to sound like you think that's going to happen
7: Yeah, I mean, that's what's already been happening. And uh, you're you're essentially placing a cap that's above the current price that they are receiving anyway. So there's very little uh, effect that it could truly have. It's it's a nominal, it's a cap above the the price. So, uh, you know, if Russia was to pay uh, European countries, uh, receive $60, they would would be happy. It would be a higher net back that they're currently getting uh, they're probably getting closer to 55 uh, and, uh, you know, cheaper transportation costs than it, it would be to, to Asia. Uh, so, it, it, you know, it, it does very little to change uh, to change the current dynamics.
1: OPEC Plus meet this weekend. They're going to do so virtually. Can I assume that as a result of meeting virtually that we won't get much change here?
7: Yeah, I think that's a fair statement, especially after such a large crack Um, And then we have all the expectations of China finally reversing the COVID zero policy. Uh, It would be very drastic for them to announce another cut, even though we've seen a drop in oil prices. It would be very drastic to see another cut on on the heels of a 2 million barrel a day allocation uh, cut. Uh, The production's already down about 1 million barrels. Exports are down a lot less because Uh, the, the, the summer burn has ended. Uh, but still, I think they'll probably just hold still right now.
0: Um, do you think they're more worried about the supply picture, AKA Russia or the demand picture, AKA China, or actually the global recession worry picture?
7: I think the latter is probably their biggest worry. Uh, you know, the, the Russia part, I think it's temporary. They, 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 will still struggle to maintain production. Um, because of the lack of capital in uh with that with western sanctions in place and the lack of services as well so that part, part of the equation is a temporary shift um but then the global recession i think is the biggest fear what does that mean for for crude demand over the next couple of months even if china does come back and we've seen a surge in uh, imports of crude into asia uh how sustainable is that if the the economy there slows down significantly
0: All right, Fernando, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for watching all of that very closely. Fernando Valle joining us from Bloomberg Intelligence. Okay, that week happened. Yay, we got through it. Um, So coming up, I'm obviously watching what's happening in the market, but also politics. I hate to say it, but we have the Georgia runoff uh, early next week. So just sort of getting through that that will feel like a big win.
1: So that's that we didn't get the vote was too close. They're having another go, basically.
0: Yes. And uh, this, well, we already know that the Democrats keep the Senate, but this will either hurt or help uh, them at the end of the day. But it's going to be a slog. It's going to be a really big slog.
1: Okay, Alex loves talking about politics. It's going to be a really big week. I don't mind
0: politics. I don't like talking to politicians. That's that's my distinction. Anyway, that's what I'm looking for. What are you into for next week?
1: It's going to get cold next week, actually. I think that's going to be something you want to pay attention to. I know I love talking about the weather, but the weather is about to turn significantly colder in Europe. And I want to see how gas markets react. I want to see how Europe really deals with its first big test uh, of cold weather, because we've been waiting for it. We're about to get it. Have a great weekend, everybody. This is Bloomberg.